The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 2, 19-30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you again, Esther. So we've been going through uh, our summer series in Philippians, and uh, uh, we find ourselves here toward the end of of the second chapter. And uh, I'll start this way. I came across a book last week, and the title of the book is uh, How to Like Paul Again. And uh, implied there is that there are some people who don't like Paul or who don't understand him or who have difficulty uh, with him for some reason or another. And uh, those reasons actually start in the Bible itself. Did you know that, that Paul's apostle colleague Peter wrote about how many of Paul's writings are difficult to understand? Uh, so there's a complexity, a, a a, a difficulty uh, comprehending some of the things that Paul writes. And then the book of Acts talks about how he was uh, prone toward being long-winded as a preacher, so long-winded that a young man uh, in one instance fell asleep in the middle of his sermon because it says he kept going on and on and on, and the man fell from, uh, from the third story uh, of the building that they were in while he was asleep. Some in the church at Corinth uh, say that his letters, Paul's letters, are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. And so, Paul had his critics even in the Bible. Now, we today in 21st century United States context can, can approach his writings as well, and, and we can start to ask questions like, is this guy all head? and no heart? Is he too intense? Is he too direct? Is he too type A? Uh, Is the bar too high for us from Paul's perspective? And so, so N.T. Wright, who has uh, written a lot on the Apostle Paul, uh, says that if we have issues with Paul, in his opinion, that has less to do with Paul and more to do with our own 
tainted vision. And then uh, N.T. Wright talks about uh, a physics teacher that he once had uh, younger in his life, and the physics teacher asked to the class the question, what is the advantage of having two eyes instead of one? And the answer given was that having two eyes enables you to see everything in three dimensions. You're able with two eyes uh, and and, and three-dimensional vision to be able to discern distance and speed and size and things like that. And so N.T. Wright goes on and he says this, if all of Paul's writing was in fact solid, dense, abstract theology, then we would never have known what he was really like as a human being. And, and he goes on to make the point that if we only see Paul as somebody who writes solid, dense, abstract, emotionally removed stuff, if this is all we see, we're probably missing an eye. We're probably not paying attention to the full picture that's offered to us. You know, Shakespeare's character Cassius in Julius Caesar says, the fault dear Brutus, is not in our stars. The fault is in ourselves. And I think what we need to do, particularly if we have more difficulty with Paul than, say, we do with John or with David or the Psalms or what have you, um, is to take a look at his shining feature of warmth. It is the warmth of Paul that actually establishes the context for Paul to say some of the hard and sometimes complicated things that he does. He's an affectionate leader before he's anything else. And his affection comes out through three Fs. I don't alliterate very often, but, but in honor of my former preaching teacher, Wilson Benton, and my predecessor here, I'm going to alliterate this time. Paul shows us his warmth through fanaticism, feeling, and fading. Three things. Let's start with fanaticism. It's a different kind of fanaticism that Paul offers to us. He is a fanatic about affirmation and encouragement and giving it often. To encourage somebody is literally to put courage into them. And the way that Paul does this is chiefly with words. You know, the writer Ann Voskamp rightly says we should only speak words, even if they're confrontive, you know, confrontational words, we should only speak words that make souls stronger. Tim Keller says that we should always uh, be on the lookout to catch somebody doing good. You've heard that phrase. Uh, You can complete it for me pretty easily. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Sure. (laughs) Do you really believe that? Do any of us really believe that? Whoever came up with this phrase, whoever believes this, is out of touch. You know, psychology today put it this way. They put a new twist on it. They said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can cut me deeply. Words are powerful things. You know, Cara Cara Powell, who is a a youth expert out of uh, Fuller Seminary in, in California, says that the key to reaching young people is not 
cool, but warmth. Warmth, she says, is the new cool. But, but warmth has always been the key to reaching people, hasn't it? And this isn't just a, a statement of truth about young people. This is also a statement about all people. Warmth and affection is absolutely critical for the healing of the human heart, especially when it comes from leaders and people in power and fathers and mothers and coaches and teachers and other authorities and mentors and so on. In chapter 1 of Philippians, listen to just a few things that Paul says <clears throat> to this church, to this collective of sons and daughters of God. He says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. He says, I hold you in my heart. He says, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, I'm confident that God who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete that work. In chapter 2, he he calls them my beloved. In verse 9 right here, he says, I'm, I'm cheered. I'm made happy whenever I hear news about you. I mean, he, go, he goes on and on. Really, this letter is a love gush. I mean, if, if you read through it, it, it is a love gush from a leader to people that he clearly has affection for. You know, I did this a couple, uh, a couple of days ago in a text message. I, I said, you know what, there's this person, I want to encourage them, and I, 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 get, I sent them a text with, with affectionate words, and I got a response within minutes, and the response was, stop emoting. <laughs> this is a person like me, type A, um, sometimes uncomfortable with touchy-feely kind of language and so on, driven. And the proper theological response to stop emoting, and I think the proper human response is, I can't, and I shouldn't, and I mustn't, because you and I are both so prone to forget the affection of Christ, and we need to be reminded of that through each other. So, let's think about Timothy. Let's look at him as a case study in this, in this text here. So, a little background on Timothy. Timothy needed some building up, just by virtue of his own personal story. He lived in the shadow of the Apostle Paul. Imagine that. Living in the, sh- the shadow of, uh, as a future protege of the Apostle Paul. He was a nervous type. There, there's a, a place in one of Paul's letters to Timothy where he says, take some wine for your stomach, to settle your stomach. He was biracial, in a racially prejudiced society. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I said the rabbis would regularly pray, thank you, my God, that I am not a Greek. Thank you that I am not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm a pure-blooded Jew. And here's Timothy, who has a Greek father and a Jewish mother. It's what the world of Harry Potter might call a mudblood. And Paul says, that's of no account. That can actually be a wonderful advantage remembering that Moses was in a cross-racial marriage, and this writer of the Song of Solomon was in a cross-racial marriage, and so on. And so, Paul's constantly affirming Timothy as a young leader, in spite of being a racially blended man in a racially prejudiced society. Timothy was young, and Paul was very careful to say to Timothy, don't ever let anybody despise you for your youth. Your Rolling Stone came out with a piece uh, on James Taylor a few years ago, 
And here's one of the quotes from James Taylor in that, es- in, in that essay. Ten critics can savage me, but I'll be fine as long as every once in a while someone like Bob Dylan or Paul McCartney says, keep going, kid. Here's what Paul says about Timothy. Hey, guys, there's no one like this young man. There is no one like him. Not a one. He's concerned for your welfare. He's like a son to me. He's a faithful servant of God. Receive him. You know, this is my story as well. You know, my biggest hurdle when I started to sense that God might be calling me into pastoral ministry was that I was terrified and had always been terrified of public speaking. Terrified. And, I, you know, I would get… You know, the teacher in elementary school or high school would ask me to read. You know, you know how teachers ask students to read in the class, you know, to read a paragraph? I would, I would get this stage fright where my heart would start pounding, and sometimes it's all I could do to get the words out. I was so nervous just to read a paragraph in front of my class. I've made two C's in my life. I'm a perfectionist, so I've always worked really hard at, at, at school. There are two classes that I made C's in. One was driver's ed. <laughs> I kept running stop signs because I was so nervous. And the other was public speaking. And yet along the way, I've had people telling me, keep going, kid. Powerful voices in my life. One of those voices is the Bible itself, Moses, perhaps the greatest and, and, and certainly most uh, prolifically published prophet of God in the Bible, when God says, you're going to be my voice to the people of Israel and also to Egypt, Moses' answer was, me? I'm not eloquent, and I have a speech impediment. Could have been a stutterer, could have just been a nervous person in front of people like me. Another one was Jeremiah. God calls Jeremiah to be a spokesman, and Jeremiah says, but Lord, I'm young, and I'm inexperienced. I'm inadequate. So, if you're called to something that feels bigger than and beyond your own skill set and capacities, these are things you can thank God for. There are all sorts of people that God platformed who were terrified, but God somehow worked through that. So, it's the Bible that helped me, but it was also some people. At the very beginning of my ministry and also 16, 17 years into my ministry, when we were called to New York City, where there are giants in the land where more people have Ivy League degrees than not, where people are always looking for the gap in your armor, where people are quick to size you up. And so, I remember one uh, particular weekend, Tim Keller decided that after 25 years of ministry in New York City for the first time in those 25 years, it's time for us to directly address uh, the abortion issue and to talk publicly in New York City about justice. 
for the vulnerable unborn. And he says, Scott, why don't you go to the big house on Sunday? And so he put me at the largest service. And I was terrified. It's also the service where his wife Kathy attends, which also terrified me because she's somebody I wanted to please and impress. And so I preach my sermon on this controversial subject to all these New Yorkers, and two people come up to me. The first person said, I didn't hear a single thing that you said today. She was a fashion person. I didn't hear anything you said today because I couldn't help but keep noticing the wrinkles on your jacket. And the next person came up to me and said, I am infuriated. How dare you bring politics into a church setting? And I was defeated. I wanted to crawl into a hole, you know, find another career, until Kathy Keller comes up afterwards and said, you just knocked it out of the park. Way to go. And then Tim Keller comes in my office the next day and said, I listened. You may have your critics, but you knocked it out of the park. And then another man named Eric, who's still a good friend of mine, it's the first time I ever met him, came up and said, I have been pro-choice all my life. I'm pro-choice no more. And I, I don't say that as a boast. I mean, because truly, I need to be really careful because I'm a perfectionist. I need to be careful. And people who live close to me need to know that I need to be careful about being the person who finds the wrinkle in people's coats. I need to be the person, just like Kathy, just like Tim, just like Eric, who never underestimates the potential power of my words to help somebody else turn the volume up on the fact that God can use a speech impediment to get His Word out, and in fact, He favors that approach. And then you've got Epaphroditus, so discouraged because he's deathly ill, and, and what is Paul say about Epaphroditus, he was so sick that he was near death. But it was from that place, people, listen to this, folks, he was so sick that he almost died, and yet he's my equal. He's my fellow worker. He is a soldier. Honor people like him. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to see you. The, the word in Greek here, the literal word is gambling. He gambled his life because he would rather die than opt out of an opportunity to encourage you, to demonstrate the affection of Christ to you. It's right there in verse 26. Here's one way this happened to me years ago. I buried a man at age 35, officiated his funeral. He, he was diagnosed with an incurable cancer and died a premature de death, left behind a young widow, two young boys. Five minutes after he died in the hospital room, I was there. It's the only death I've personally witnessed with my own eyes. Five minutes after he died, his widow, his new widow, pulls me aside, says, can I talk to you? I said, sure, of course, anything. She says, 
How are you doing? Brian was your friend. How are you doing? I mean, from the place of weakness, refusing to miss out on the opportunity to encourage. Does that sound familiar? Fanaticism about affirmation and encouragement. But second, feeling. Rather than criticize Paul for, you know, being unfeeling, all head, no heart, some religious people among us actually prefer Paul to be that way, austere, distant, reverent. You know, this is the, that part of us that gets uncomfortable when we, we see other people raising their hands in worship and crying, weeping even, demonstrating elation and joy. We get nervous about that because it doesn't seem very reverent. Keep your cool, maintain your poise. It's like the, those dry idea deodorant commercials in the 1980s. You know, the tagline, never let them see you sweat. I think sometimes we think that's what Christianity is supposed to look like, that, that, that being in the center of the will of God is to be serious, austere, emotionally removed, maybe a little bit mean as well for good measure. But what Paul's demonstrating here is you're only seeing me with one eye if that's all you see in me. Because what Paul insists on, both in his practice and in his words, is don't hold in your emotions. Always let them see you sweat. You can never feel too much in the presence of God. You can never feel too much when you're serving the people of God and living among the people of God. Again, he says in verse 26, I long for you all. In verse 27, God spared Epaphroditus' life. Why did He do that? For me, you guys. Because if He had died, I would have sorrow upon sorrow. God spared His life, Paul says, so that I would be less anxious. God sparing Epaphroditus' life was to take care of me and of my emotions. And some people might look at Paul after, you know, this love gush and say, hey, bro, you're a leader. You're supposed to keep your poise. Manage your emotions. Get yourself together. That's just code for, hey, man, be a half-human. Be a half-human instead of being a whole human. But like the Psalms, you just catalog the letters of Paul. You go through them. He is an exhibit and affirmation of what it means to live out the full range of human emotions. You know, I love what Russ Ramsey said in one of his previous sermons here about lament. He said, lament is a necessary skill in the art of rejoicing. It's a paradox there. Kevin Twitt, who's you know, devoted his life to um, you know, putting the best hymns out there for consumption and encouragement among the people of God. He says, we refuse, we must refuse to ask people to sing dishonestly. If it's all happy clappy, we're asking people to be dishonest because everybody is fighting a hard-hidden battle. And so, our songs need to have this, this balance, this juxtaposition 
of joy and laughter as well as lamenting and sorrow. You know, Beth Moore, the, the Christian writer, says, if you can still weep with someone crushed of spirit, if you can still laugh with someone whose dream came true, then Satan has lost on your account. N.T. Wright again says, emotions are not silly surface noise. If we pretend we don't have human emotions, then we pretend that we don't need human emotions. In other words, it's a denial. The refusal to emote is a denial of the gift that God has given us. We're just suppressing a beautiful aspect of the image of God in us. The more like Jesus we become, the more our tear ducts and serotonin and pleasure centers will be activated. I guess what you could say is Paul's life is an invitation to let God make you happy and to let God make you sad. The mature human being, Paul shows us, is the vulnerable human being. Jesus demonstrated the same. Matthew 27, he's turning tables over in church because people are turning his house of prayer into a place of profit. John chapter 11, we we see that he is angry, viscerally angry at death, and and he also enters into the weeping of Mary and Martha, the brother or, or the sisters of the deceased Lazarus. Hebrews 5, 7, it says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. You know, he's praying at the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says that he's so distressed that he's, he's sweating drops of blood, and it, it, it says that he's overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Why is Jesus willing to be overwhelmed with sorrow, that's answered for us in Hebrews 12, for the joy that's set before Him. Sorrow and joy, full range of human emotion, agony and lament, joy and anticipation, all these feelings do not cancel each other out. They complete each other. They actually give a picture of what real reverence is. To be reverent is to be an honest, feeling human being before the face of God and in the presence of people. So, fanaticism, feeling, and then finally, fading. Nobody likes dogmatic people unless your dogma leads you to become the kind of person who corrects gently and encourages fiercely and is willing not to be the point. You know, Paul's dogma leads him to be warm toward others and humble before the face of God. You know, John the Baptist was another one. He's, he's got this growing following. His, his platform is increasing. His influence is increasing. And he says, you know what, there's one who's coming after me whose sandals I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy to even untie. He must increase and I must become less. And you see this in Paul. He's content to remain in prison. There's no evidence 
I can think of in any of Paul's letters where he actually, where he, that he writes from prison. He writes four letters from prison. I cannot identify a place in any, of those, in any of those letters where he prays or asks somebody else to pray that God will release him from prison, that God will release him from his hard circumstances. His heart is always about the fame and reputation and honor and glory and affection of Christ moving out into the world whether through my life or through my death, whether through my freedom or through my imprisonment, whether through my ascending platform or whether through my descent into invisibility and and irrelevance, may Christ be glorified in your life and in mine. And what does Paul do instead of saying, I got to get back out there, people. I got to get back out in the game. Instead, Paul says this, I'm sending to you Timothy time for me to start passing the, the baton. I'm sending you Epaphroditus. I hope, he says, in the Lord Jesus to send them, to send Timothy to you soon. Guys, there's no one like him. Some, some seek their own interest, their own platform, their own fame, their own recognition, their own celebrity. Some devote their whole lives to getting to the top of the org chart. But Timothy, he's just a young man who's eager to serve. He cheers my heart, and he loves you. Paul is content to be replaced. Timothy is content to be a leader or a servant, to to, to minister in such a way that, that, that makes him visible or in such a way that makes him invisible. So, I was in a conversation with a a pastor the other day who was um, talking about his failure as a father. And here, here's the failure. He's sitting down with, with his wife and, and, and one of his children, and they're listening to teaching, and, and somebody in the teaching mentions John Calvin, and the child leans over to the pastor's wife and says, Mom, who's John Calvin? It's a Presbyterian pastor, too. Mom, who's John Calvin? But maybe that's the point. Maybe that's what John Calvin would have wanted, because like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus Christ Himself, who made Himself nothing, Calvin insisted on being buried in an unmarked grave. This is a man who's made more contribution to the world of theological thought than anybody else outside of the Bible in the history of the world and he says, it's time for me to descend. It's time for me to fade. It's time for me to be invisible. He must increase. I must become less. You know, pray this for your leaders. God, give our leaders character that exceeds their gifts and abilities, humility that exceeds their influence, warmth that exceeds their drive, friends that exceed their number of admirers. These, by the way, are all descriptions of Paul, who said, follow my example as I follow the example of the affectionate Christ. So, if you don't like Paul, now might be as good a time as any to get your eyes checked. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, You have come to us as a lion and as a lamb. 
you are both fierce and tender. You are both severe and kind. Thank you that you've come to us, Jesus, as a truth teller as well as a love gusher. What a privilege it is, Lord, to follow in the wake of a son and a savior and a friend and a champion fanatic of affirmation and encouragement, a deep feeler of both joy and sorrow, who even though he was in very nature God was willing, even eager to fade in order to position us in the family of God and to make room for us at the table that is now in front of us. And so, Lord, I pray, we pray that you would meet us even now in the Lord's Supper, the body and the blood, the bread and the cup, where you meet us in a real way, where you demonstrate to us through physical realities and through our senses of taste and touch and smell and sight, that you are here with us spiritually as well. So take these elements, set them apart, consecrate them, and encourage our souls, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.